Hey, everybody, it's Bax. Today's podcast is brought to you by Canna Provisions. Canna Provisions is an adult-use cannabis dispensary with the largest selection of cannabis products in western Massachusetts with locations in both Holyoke and in Lee. They offer a warm, unique shopping experience with guides rather than bud tenders. In fact, they're not just a dispensary, they're a destination. Visit CannaProvisions.com. That's CannaProvisions.com. Adults, 21, please, and please consume responsibly. And now, today's episode of Baxi's Musical Podcast. A while back, I interviewed my Marquette University classmate and friend Cheryl Pavelski from Omnivore Recordings. Cheryl, as you may recall, has had an exceptional career, winning a couple of Grammy Awards over the last decade. But she is hardly the only music success story to come out of Marquette in the 1980s, not by a long shot, because the other big success story is the amazing career of music executive John Rubley. What you're about to hear is an incredible story of a young man from Arizona whose passion, persistence, and perception has led him from being a college freshman at Marquette University's radio station when I was there to becoming one of the founding members of the Lollapalooza Festival one of the most influential music festivals of the 1990s to booking, managing, and signing some of the most influential bands in history, including during his 12 years at Atlantic Records, to owning his own record label, Gray Market Records. John Rubley is a man who has landed himself in the middle of some of the most important moments in music history and has had a hand in exposing an entire generation to some of the most important music over the last three decades. I've known John Rubley for the last 35 years, and it was a pleasure to catch up with him on today's episode of Baxi's Musical Podcast. Good to see you. You too, man. Yeah. yeah we caught up a little bit earlier this week, and uh, you know, it was it was great to catch up because obviously we hadn't talked in, in an awful long time. And um, you know, I'm preparing some some ideas after our conversation. And I you know, I was trying to remember back. When I first met you, and you were a freshman at, at, at school, and I remember it like very distinctly because you were a guy who was like very passionate about certain bands and certain songs uh, that were either being played on the campus radio station or not being played at the campus radio station. As I told you the other day, you know, I had come from such a limited musical you know background. You know, where the Cars were considered a punk band, and you know Tom Petty was totally new wave, and and I really envied the the knowledge and exposure that you had. And even though you know there was two years difference, I was like you know two years ahead of you. I always felt like I was in some ways like ten years behind you. And I, and I and I and I'm really proud of what you've done for the last thirty five years because that that passion and enthusiasm has really defined your whole career. There's an upside to not having friends. <laughs> you find them. You find them in unlikely places and record sleeves and gallery walls and whatnot you know it's like the the inanimate things uh can be healthy things i don't think i was any different i think you know i was buying records at the time because of you know of people like you and some other friends of ours i I watched what you you guys were listening to and what you were buying and reflecting and i'm going well i want to hear that too and and that kind of opened up the door for me to discover all this stuff and 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 i 
and I'm still doing it where I'm still going back and discovering stuff that I had forgotten about or even stuff that I'm, I'm learning about. Where does that passion for music come from? Um, I think it was, again, having a lot of time to myself and being kind of introspective and wanting to have um, a connection to something. So for me growing up, the connection was Calvin and Hobbes and the comic book strips, um, Mad Magazine, um, you know, things that were a little bit outsider that like I could read, consider or look at and think I'm one of the only few people that are doing this and I'm and I'm okay in this place. <laughs> and then, you know, and then driving around in high school, having a cassette player, I used to think like I'm the only person right now listening to, you know, the Bruises album by Gene Loves Jezebel. And, you know, I'm listening to the Misfits and and, and just me. And so in, in a lot of ways, it, it, I didn't choose to be insular and outside. It's just where, where my comfort was trying to figure out like what life was going to unfold uh, into for me. And I think in many ways, choosing Milwaukee and choosing Marquette was an extension of that. Like having gone to a Jesuit high school and sort of like the closest equivalent to a punk rock priest, I guess, is a Jesuit. So <laughs> to be able to go in that environment and go to uh, Milwaukee, you know, a great city adjacent to an even, well, I'll say it, greater city, Chicago. Um, <laughs> There's going to be people beating down their door after hearing that comment. I know, I know. Well, <laughs> to me, it's one and the same. How about that? There you go. Um, but it just, it just became this, that safe space of like, I know this, I'm familiar with this, but I can also kind of coexist in, in my head and coexist in, in the ephemera that was around me. Because at that point, the the, the books and the comics gave way to records and skateboarding. And so to be in Milwaukee on my skateboard, going to Eastside Records, Atomic Records mm -hmm. and places like that was like, it was the same, you know? And then the, the people I met, right? People like you and people at the radio station and the handful of friends that I had, um, it was easy because we all looked the same and we all kind of, which is to say, like you could just tell, right? I'm not saying like, it's not like this was before Hot Topic. So you couldn't buy something <laughs> to, to make you look different. And it wasn't to say that, that everyone was exceptionally different looking. It was just people were wearing themselves in a way that you could see and that it invited you to have a conversation or invited you to have an engagement with them because you're like, oh, I know, I know that. Or I know what that is. And like, you know, I and, and, and growing up in Phoenix, seeing all of these bands from Los Angeles do their tour, which was to Phoenix, everyone from Motley Crue and Guns N' Roses to um, Bad Religion and Social Distortion to, you know, the UK subs, like it was just the... Arizona was it was you had to stop somewhere between Dallas and Los Angeles so Phoenix was like a great place for me to meet all these people and understand that it wasn't because at that time sure you know people could dress a little differently wear their hair a little differently but 
I just responded, I think, to authenticity and uniqueness, which wasn't necessarily adorned in this ostentatious, obvious way. When you saw it, you knew it and you gravitated towards it. And so Milwaukee, Phoenix, Los Angeles, it was all the same to me. Yeah. I saw the same people, I met the same people and felt the same degree of acceptance among these people. What's interesting is you know, on one hand, being a fan of, of music and being a fan of, you mentioned, you know, you're the only guy maybe listening to Gene Loves Jezebel. You know, we all have bands that feel like we own, that no one else knows, and there are bands and it, it's ours to keep and, and, and hold close. But on the other hand, it's kind of an interesting parallel that there's a tribal part of it. And whether it's, you know, live performance, you're with like-minded people, you're all seeing a band that together you all enjoy. Live music was clearly a very, very important thing for you. And, you know, it, it was for a lot of us, but, you know, again, many of us were not exposed to that. I mean, I grew up in a town of, you know, at the time it was like 8,000 people. We didn't have, you know, streetlights, sidewalks, or a McDonald's. In the 80s, when we were in school together, that's when I started to discover it. And, and you were a real big part of that because you were not just part of the crowd. You were part of booking the shows, which is a pretty interesting leap for many people to even dream of doing that or even know how to do that at the, at the college level. I mean, that was my, the beginnings of becoming a professional fan. That just became the journey of like, how, how do I take this feeling, this insight and this sense of tribal community and share it? right? Like everything to me is a mixtape. Everything is, if it's, if it's that great and that awesome, you want to copy it and give it to someone. You want to share it. You want to um, bring people to the thing that, that is inspiring you to feel what you feel. Um, I mean, for me, like being in a, a club or a concert hall, it's like I'm together with these people, but I'm by myself, right? So I'm, I'm usually toward the front, usually lip syncing to, along with the the act and just in my own state of connectivity with what's going on but I'm with people so it was kind of like a weird sense of I'm trying by being at the concerts and a weird sense of I'm succeeding by being at the concerts so anyway the, the thing with Marquette that was amazing was I get to Milwaukee I immediately apply to become a DJ, which was amazing. I think my shift was like 10 p.m. on a Sunday. It was like, or 8 a.m. on a Sunday. It was <laughs> one, one or the other, I can't remember, which was fine. And then the two guys I got hooked up with, all they played was the, um, the Grateful Dead and reggae music. And, and I, I haven't really shared this, but one of the acts that they played was this artist, Muda Baruka, who was like a kind of like the reggae minor threat. Like he was just basically political, took a point of view and was like hypercharged. And I ended up booking him on Lollapalooza in 1993. So whoever those two dudes were, I don't, I, I don't remember, but right. they were instrumental in Muda Baruka playing, <laughs> you know, opening for Mercury Rev on Lollapalooza uh, and Royal Trucks, which was kind of amazing. But anyway, so I, I did the radio thing and then I ended up, um, working for a local promoter named Tony Selig. He was the nephew of Bud Selig who owned the Brewers at the time and was the commissioner of baseball. And Tony was this local impresario and had like the, the dance night twice a week. And, mm -hmm. you know, Bobby Brabant was the DJ and that's a whole, that's a, you should, you should talk to him. I've, I've thought about 
talking to Bobby <laughs> because I don't know if you remember this. Well, t- there are two great stories about Bobby. One, we were having the the, uh, the campus radio station was having a party at this club, and uh, I was supposed to go up and talk to the DJ about what we were going to do, and Bobby was the DJ. And <laughs> I know how that talk went. <laughs> it, did, it didn't. It didn't go well. I believe it was like, "Hi, I'm Mike Baxendale from uh, WMUR at Marquette," and, he, and I believe the response was. Why the fuck are you up here? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, but the other story about Bobby was when I was doing my first morning show in Milwaukee, Bobby would hang out with us all the time, me and downstairs Dan Hansen, to a point where you could almost say he was kind of like our producer on that show. I mean, he's a remarkably colorful personality. And if there's anyone that needs to write a book, it's Bobby. Well, you know, it's just a quick aside. <laughs> Hopefully not one too many of those, but but like... I used to take the bus to high school. Um, my parents would drop me off at the mall and, and I, I took the bus to downtown Phoenix. And then um, after school, I'd get dropped off at the mall and I'd go hang out at the record store. Yep. And the record store clerk was in the local punk rock band. And he's the one that actually introduced me to the fall and mm-hmm. love and rockets and, and things like that. And he was probably, I could say five or six years older than me. And then one of his bandmates would hang around too and gave me Interview with a Vampire by Anne Rice back in, you know, 1986 or something. And so those guys really included me in in their sort of um, circle of the obscure, right? And Bobby was the same. And and I would say, you know, Rich Menning, who owned Atomic Records in Milwaukee, was the same. I just was, you know... We talked about Dave Breen earlier, who's a clerk at Atomic Records. Like all these people were very giving and very supportive and very nurturing of someone that was curious like me to to know the things I didn't know. And so whether it was passing down, you know, old t-shirts or teaching me how to use oatmeal soap to spike my hair or, um, you know, just, just what, you know, even politics, right? It was just a, a, another side of life that there's no way I would have learned if it weren't for, you know, these older people not only accepting, but really nurturing my curiosity and my need to, to fit in somewhere. And so anyway, at Marquette, it was, it was really through working for Tony Selig at the venue, talking to these booking agents about all the acts they were trying to book at the time. And Milwaukee was a great market because it was so close to Madison, so close to Green Bay, so close to Chicago. And eventually I was talking to an agent who was frustrated he couldn't book a band called the Goo Goo Dolls. And, you know, did I have any ideas? And I said, well, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm starting to take over this concert program on campus in the, in the, in, in, in the basement of the student <laughs> union. And um, I could have them play. And he's like, do you have a budget? I'm like, I, I probably can get like 500 bucks. He's like, done, sold. And the Goo Goo Dolls were on a label called Metal Blade at the time. They reminded me so much of the replacements. And I mean, you can, I don't think you could be our age and not have one degree of separation of the greatness of the replacements and Husker Du and, you know, and, and all things touch and go and things like that. It was just the time. Um, anyway, so I, I ended up booking the Goo Goo Dolls and it was awesome. And I, I started to think about like, well, who am, I, who am I booking this for? And then I realized, well, you know, there's a handful of students that I know that are into it, 
but there's also people I was meeting around town at the venues and clubs and whatnot. And I was like, well, why don't I invite them too? Why don't I include the local music writer, Thor Christensen at the Milwaukee Journal or the writer at the weekly alternative, The Shepherd Express? Why not include them in this and create something where, you know, the elite private Catholic school is actually a part of your community and not outside of your community. Every Friday at three, we had these free concerts and the Goo Goo Dolls led to Soul Asylum, led to the Flaming Lips, led to Nine Inch Nails, led to Primus, um, you know, and the, and the list goes on. It, it, and, and I was at the right place at the right time because this is sort of the apex of college rock and the height of touring and being a, a venue in Milwaukee where you could play at three in the afternoon and get paid probably twice what you were getting paid at a club and, and you were selling merch and it was a free show and it was in front of hundreds of people. And that night you could go play Chicago, right. Madison, Green Bay. It just became something that built on itself. And I just happened to you know, have a good Rolodex at the time. I, I remember going to a lot of those shows and I remember you know, the, the posters that were put up and, and I remember people saying, you're not going to believe who Rubley booked. And it was years later when the Goo Goo Dolls are, are blowing up commercially and, and Soul Asylum and, the, and many of the bands that you're talking about really hit. It was like, hey, wait a minute, I saw those in a room full of 150 people and it was awesome. Well, I have to say part of it was having um, the administration of the school really um, emphasize um, the student activity fee that we all paid and really having, I mean, I think what Jerry Seinfeld performed the, my senior year on campus. So you had people booking speakers. I think Jello Biafra performed, <laughs> you know, spoke to, you know, so it was, it was a time where Milwaukee was right on the map in terms of all of these people doing these tours, whether it was a spoken word tour, a comedy tour, and in my case, music tours. And so, you know, I just remember I really wanted to book Peter Murphy because I, I think all of us were Bauhaus fans at the time. And Peter Murphy had this album Deep that was coming out and which ended up being his big album and Cut You Up is still a song that gets played a lot on alternative radio. And they played in the movie theater um, on campus and I charged $3 for students and $7 for the general public. And tickets remained available up until a week before. And, the re and then what happened was I started getting flack because it ended up selling out. People were confused why tickets were made available to the general public, but that was helping to offset the budget of putting on the show. But the reason why it picked up is the opening act was Nine Inch Nails, and it was right before Pretty Hate Machine came out. And right around the time the show happened, which was in April of 1990, Nine Inch Nails was it. And they just happened to be lucky. Again, it, you know, I think like in life, if you put yourself out there in a way where you have good intention and you have this degree of authenticity, I don't know, you, you tend to be in the right place more often than not. And I just feel like for me, people like you and the other friends I had on campus made me feel okay. I, I'm sorry, I'm using very contemporary speak. I wish I knew what that meant back then. <laughs> I wish I wish I knew what therapy was because I didn't have the same parents you did. To me, 
you know, music was the most therapeutic thing unbeknownst to myself, was curing things I didn't know was a problem and ultimately putting me on a healthier path than I guess I otherwise would have been on. But the overall experience I had in Milwaukee for four years changed my life and influenced everything I've done since. Let's talk about after Marquette. Tell, tell me about what happened immediately after. Did you, did you go right back home to uh, Arizona or did you stick around that area? Yeah, it was, it was, it was pretty fortuitous. I, I packed up my Volkswagen and I saw Madonna on the Leica prayer tour at the Rosemont Horizon in Chicago with my stuff in the parking lot and continued driving home. I was home for about a month in, in Scottsdale and my dad was in pretty insistent that I go to business school and I was pretty insistent that I not go to business school. <laughs> um, and then after about a month, it was July 4th weekend, I just, I moved to Los Angeles and I, I had some friends in a band that had a room for rent for a hundred bucks a month. And I had had this experience at this point in the music industry. And I just thought, why not give it a shot? The other thing I had done in college was I was a college rep for Capitol Records, which gave me a really good insight and relationship with record companies and just the way that the business as a whole was working. And I thought, well, why not? Let, let me let me give it a shot. So I get I get to Los Angeles and um, I started interning at a couple of labels, one of which my roommates were on. They were on a label called IRS Records. Um, they got dropped and I quit immediately and then interned at another label. And at the same time, I got a job at a record store called Moby Disc. There was a chain of them in, in the Southern California area. And they were one of the first to be a new used record store. And it was right at the time CDs were becoming ubiquitous. So everyone was trading in their vinyl. So I was at this really amazing store and there was really... A, it was a really colorful location in the San Fernando Valley and people like Burt Reynolds and Sherman Hemsley, um, <laughs> cast of the Brady Bunch would come in. And like, I met a guy named Ed Stasium who actually produced Soul Asylum and yep. Living Color and the Ramones and Ed became a friend. And I just was one of those record store clerks where I was so enthusiastic. I wanted to share great stuff with people. And one day this guy came in and was buying really amazing stuff. And I was sharing with him and he sort of Bobby Brabanted me and was like, you know, <laughs> get away kind of thing. Like I already know all of this. And anyway, I was persistent and he pays with a gift certificate and it has the name Mark Geiger on there. And Mark is a legendary alternative booking agent who was one of the people that started Lollapalooza. Um, we'll get to that in a second. And I just said, and he was an agent I had dealt with when I was in college. And I just said, dude, like, I'm so incredibly honored to meet you. And he's like, what are you doing? I'm like, well, you know, I moved out here. I, I want a job. He's like, we'll come in tomorrow. We'll interview you for the agent training program. And the agency was called Triad, which William Morris ended up buying. Mm -hmm. So I, I found myself in the classic David Geffen mailroom, working my way up from delivering packages and copying scripts to sitting on a desk and the end goal there was to be a booking agent and the agency I worked at booked Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, eventually started Lollapalooza which we'll get to meet and that um, booked a lot of the 4AD and creation bands that I really liked and I was literally in the hub of everything that meant something to me and 
So I sat at that desk and people walked by and I wanted to know who every single person was. So you had musicians and managers and um, lawyers and record label people. And I, I just needed to know who they all were and sort of just assumed a position as a, a wallflower or a, a cubicle something or other and just stared at these people. And eventually I started to develop friendships and relationships. I mean, my favorite story is the, the agency booked the Inspiral Carpets and they had this really sort of boisterous roadie with them and it ended up being Noel Gallagher from Oasis and I was like oh okay so got to meet him and then I ended up taking Perry Farrell to see Oasis at the Whiskey in, in LA for their first ever show but anyway speaking of Perry I ended up meeting his manager at the time a guy named Ted Gardner mm -hmm. he was managing Jane's Addiction and Tool he's kind of a legendary brash Australian guy who got his start tour managing Men at Work, Frank Zappa, Echo and the Bunny Men, and was known as being a very uh, colorful, very decisive, um, some would say threatening personality. <laughs> but he he took a, a real interest in me and saw my enthusiasm, saw my passion, and took it as something genuine. Um, I mentioned this to you earlier, like I'm not a cynical person. I'm just purely... I'm, I'm emotive, I'm passionate, I find joy in things. Some people may say that I'm full of the S word, but uh, that's just me. And he saw that in me and said, you know, you could really be doing more than what you're doing here. So why don't you come help grow my management company? And Perry and I are talking and we want to give you a stage to book on Lollapalooza where you can take all of your passion and all of your interests and we'll let you pick bands and, and make it your thing. And that was in 1992, so I was, tw I was 24. And I thought of it in the same way I thought of booking shows at Marquette. It was instead of picking things for, you know, the few hundred people that would come to the lunchroom, I started thinking about the tens of thousands of people that would come to these empty fields that we would show up at. And, and amphitheaters and so it's the same thing it was yeah. the same it was the same mixed mixtape sharing ideology that i had developed up until that point what's really interesting about your involvement in Lollapalooza is if you look at the bookings for the three years that you were there the bands who were being booked on the secondary stage you know in hindsight were every bit as impressive as those who were on the main stage in fact in some cases, they became bigger bands. Credit to you that that secondary stage became such a popular feature of that entire festival. Thanks, man. Because um, you're like the first famous person I ever knew. So coming from <laughs> you, that means a lot. Well, um, let's let's uh, let's let's keep that let's let's keep that clear headed. Dude, I'm telling you, I saw you walking down. I saw you walking down Wisconsin <laughs> Avenue, and I'm like, that dude's on the radio, and I know him. That, I'm that. That's a magic moment. <laughs> It was around, I don't know, 14th Street or something. Yep. Anyway, so, so, but I can, I can tell you, you know, there's a thread that's coming together here. And that is when I showed up to an empty office, literally with the desk and a chair and a phone, not knowing what I was going to do to go ahead and officially book the 1993 Lollapalooza. I had made some suggestions and sort of loosely helped out a little bit with the 92 Lollapalooza. But in 93 was, we're going to have an official second stage. 
we're going to advertise it and we're going to make it a real thing. So I wasn't really sure, you know, what, what, what to do. And I sat down and I ended up, um, the first band I ever booked was a band called Cell. Cell was on DGC. They were signed by Sonic Youth um, at the same time they signed Nirvana. And they were managed by a guy named Lyle Heisen, who was in a band called Das Damen. And I saw Das Damen play at the Unicorn in Milwaukee. And Lyle was in New York. I think he was working for Matador Records at the time. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Lyle knew everybody. So I kind of explained, like, this is something I'm trying to do. And at that point, Lollapalooza was, had this tinge of like a corporate rock festival. So I was trying to convince people that they wouldn't lose credibility by doing Lollapalooza, you know, because that was a big thing. Like you're a sellout, you lose cred, all of that stuff that um, when you're a part of a subculture, you know, you, you, you contend with. Anyway, so Lyle started sharing his Rolodex, introducing me to people. I met, I met um, these two gals who ran a label called Simple Machines, um, Jenny and Kristen. And they were putting out amazing records at the time. They'd actually released a book on how to, how to release your own records and how to tour. And they were friends with a lot of the Discord bands and a mm-hmm. lot of the team bands. And so they put me in touch with the band Unrest. And so I ended up booking them. And then I met Sebado's agent. And so she was amazing. And, and so it, it started spiraling. And then one day out of the blue, I, I got a message from Steve Shelley, the drummer of Sonic Youth. And at that point, Sonic Youth's sister was my every Beatles album combined into one. That right. was it for me. And, and he, he had gotten my number from Lyle and said, hey, I want to play the festival. I have a side project called Mosquito. And it was with Jad Fair from Half Japanese mm-hmm. and, and a guy named Tim Folion from $2 Guitar. And they were actually Cat Power's band at the time. So Steve was putting out Cat Power's records. And so it was like, you know, in the thick of like really solid core indie rock at the time. And this is like the drummer of my favorite band asking if he could play. And I was like, sure. And then <laughs> next week I got a call from Kim Gordon from Sonic Youth who said she wanted to play because she had a side project called Free Kitten with Julie K. Fritz from Pussy Galore, which was one of my absolute favorite bands at the time, and Mark Eibald from Pavement. I was like, okay, sure. And then (laughs) the week after that, Thurston Moore from Sonic Youth called and said, hey, my wife's going on tour. Can I tag along? I'm I'm working on a solo record and can I play some shows? So here I have like three fourths of my favorite band ever calling this 24 year old kid saying we want to play your festival. And then I got to hang out with them for the for part of the summer. You know, that was the other bonus for me is not only could I pick these bands, I could I could go hang out with all of these people. And it was truly like the lifelong summer camp relationships that you develop because of how close-knit it was all then and again this was pre-internet pre-everything this was hand-to-mouth um passing flip side and maximum rock and roll magazines from one to the next and it was it was truly the subculture so the other thing that i benefited from that summer aside from hanging out with all these amazing people was i got to meet kids in every single city that the festival toured to and understood what made people the same what made people different and so i spent the next two years 94 and 95 really thinking about all of those kids 
and book the things that I thought they would like, whether they knew they existed or not, which led to Stereo Lab, which led to The Verb, which led to The Roots, which led to Method Man, which led to Coolio. So I have a really funny Coolio story. Okay. So I, I, I really wanted to book Coolio in 1995. He I love that fantastic Voyage song with the Ride Ride Slippity Slide chorus. And he was just a character. And at that point, I had I had booked the Fushnickens because I Mike D and the BC, BC Boys played in 1994. And Mike D was really hands-on and who played the second stage and was the most respectful, most encouraging, and most gracious partner one could ask for in, in selecting acts and really helped me recognize the need to program specifically to the people that were coming. And so I don't know, Coolio fit the bill to me. And I didn't have enough in my budget to book him in, in 1995. And I went to Ted Gardner and said, I really want to book Coolio. I don't have enough money. The other members of the committee are not having my back. He's like, just do it and we'll find you the money. So wow. that year, Sonic Youth headlined. <clears throat> and I thought it was a little troubling for me because I felt like the main stage became almost too insular. It became too, I guess, inside baseball, right? Like, and I found myself arguing for Stone Temple Pilots, for Live, for Bush, for like more, com the Goo Dolls, more commercial alternative acts that would actually bring in the person that didn't have the level of exposure that the rest of us had. Because those are the things that sell tickets. Those are the things that bring people in. And my, my, philosophy was always people are going to come to Lollapalooza regardless at least at that point it's kind of like what Coachella is now but Lollapalooza was that until I think 95 made it not that because it was too obscure on the main stage and didn't have enough acknowledgement of what people were actually listening to in order to then get them to listen to the stuff that we were programming that was maybe a little outside of what their level of exposure was. So going back to Coolio, I, I remember he rolls up to the World Amphitheater in Chicago and the second stage was in the parking lot. The other bands were Laika, Roller Skate Skinny and Yola Tango. And it was, and Coolio. And so <laughs> he, he, he shows up and nice guy i give him a polaroid camera and said hey can you take a picture of your your entourage i need to make you laminates and an hour goes by and, I, and i'm like hey man can i have the pictures he's like oh i need more film so i give him more film hour later like hey man because i just need like two more rolls of film and i got you i'm like all right <laughs> so i i I'm, i i look for him again and i walk by the merch booth and there's like 50 coolio signed polaroids for sale for like 50 bucks each and i was like this is amazing anyway coolio, so coolio coolio performs that day he's in the parking lot and the jesus lizard is on the main stage okay the jesus lizard is playing to a few hundred people and coolio is playing to eighteen thousand people in the parking lot because at the beginning of the summer the song gangster's paradise was released and it was like one of the hits of the summer. Again, right. just total, total luck. 
Uh, and I remember the first time he played it, it was before it was even on the radio. I was like, I was like, you sure you want to play that song? Cause I, I, it hadn't, it wasn't anything at that point. And it was a lot different stuff that he'd done. But one of the organizers came up to me and was super aggressive and was like, you effed me. And I'm like, what are you talking about? You deliberately did this to sh- upstage me having the Jesus lizard on the main stage and you just had to rub it in, didn't you? And I'm like, no, I, I, that's not a motivation of mine. But what I'd like you to pay attention to is the fact that you had absolutely no idea that 18,000 people would like to see this. And, and I hmm. caught a lot of flack from you because you didn't have the same insight I did for the previous two summers to know that that was something that was going to work and was something that was going to be successful. So, you know, again, not to, I mean, I, I know I was, everything sounds all chipper and rosy, but it, it was difficult. I mean, it was difficult being a 24 year old kid in a room with people almost twice my age defending the subculture. Like in 1993 saying you have to book Dinosaur Jr. on the main stage because you don't have anyone else representing the community of musicians that I'm booking on the second stage. And there should be some continuity between the two stages. And, and so I, I stuck my neck out in a way that made me very uncomfortable, probably very unhealthy because I'm super sensitive super passionate. I didn't understand why they were coming for me. But at the same time, I also didn't know that I was coming across super confident with blinders on. And in their eyes was probably just this punk ass kid pushing their way through when in fact, all I was was simply a kid. Yeah. And doing what kids do. Well, and what you were doing was booking acts that it's not under your control whether or not they succeed and it's not under your control when they succeed or, you know, Coolio is an interesting example because I mean, you're absolutely right. He takes a, he takes a Stevie wonder uh, song and makes it a huge hit. Who would have known that that would have happened? And you know, that's not your fault. And it's interesting that, that someone would take it as you aggressively stepping on feet. You're just doing the job that you were being hired to do yeah and and i'll and i'll rewind to 1994 which i feel like was kind of the 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 peak in my mind of Lollapalooza. that was the year that the beastie boys and the smashing pumpkins headline and it was the year that nirvana was supposed to play and there was a big back and forth about nirvana playing and at one point nirvana's agent asked me to talk to kurt about the bands that he wanted to have play and both he and Billy Corgan really wanted Shudder to think to play. So I loved the Discord connection and was happy to have them play. Um, and Kurt mentioned the Frogs, who happened to be from Milwaukee. And I thought it was a, a weird, crazy full circle for me that he would mention the Frogs. But uh, as we all know, Nirvana ended up not doing it. The Frogs end up doing it. And like they showed up. And I mean, one of the brothers performed in blackface. I mean, no one thought anything of it at the time. And because they had a, let's just say they did like a pro gay album. They did a pro black album. And they're two esoteric brothers from Milwaukee who just wrote some of the most amazing Daniel Johnston, Alex Chilton-esque songs Mm -hmm. and were just like sublime in, in every way. Yeah. So they show up and 
a guy named Damien Striggins was playing bass and he was the the bouncer at a club in Milwaukee called the Unicorn. And I, it just was so crazy that he was there. Rich, who owned Atomic Records, came along and filmed the whole thing. It was crazy that he was there. And like Billy Corgan would drop on the second stage and perform with them. And pretty soon that summer, a lot of the main stage acts were taking an interest in the second stage. So Green Day played unannounced, L7 played unannounced, and Cypress Hill played unannounced, the Black Crows played unannounced. Like I had all of these things that were going on because a lot of the main stage acts were recognizing the connection to the subculture that was happening on the second stage. Like Nick right. Cave would sing What a Wonderful World with the Flaming Lips. And the <laughs> Flaming Lips was its own story. I think I mentioned to you, I booked them at Marquette and yep. um, the opening act was Nirvana who was supposed to play but I got a call from Chris Novoselic at two who said, we're leaving now, we'll be there soon. And I said, where are you leaving from? And he said, Minneapolis. And I'm like, dude, you're several hours away. You're not going to make our show. <laughs> um, but that was, that was my, my initial connection with Nirvana. I ended up seeing him the next night at the Cabaret Metro in Chicago. But anyway, um, so the Flaming Lips I became friendly with back then. And I just sort of stayed in touch and ended up helping bring them into the agency I was working at who started representing them. And, and I went with them to the taping of 90210 when they performed at the Peach Pit. So again, I, I was living this amazing life as a professional fan. I yeah. just, people I met. Anyway, during that summer tour, they had that song, She Don't Use Jelly, that became a, a hit that summer. And I just remember telling people from Warner Brothers that were coming out, like, you're not paying any attention to the flaming lips and i'm telling you every time they play this song the place goes absolutely nuts like you should pay attention to this band and so again i'm finding myself in a position where i'm on the front line seeing the kids react to the thing that they're being exposed to having to, to advocate for and ultimately ultimately defend what that is to the industry people who again are looking at me like i'm you know some punk kid and in reality, I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm a window into the thing that you're all programming for. I'm the person you are doing this to, for, and because of. And if I'm reminding you of that, it's only from the, the, the place of, I feel like that's why I'm here. And I feel like that's why Perry Farrell put me in this position, because he recognized the, those things in me. And frankly got out of the way and supported everything I did to allow me to be turned loose in a way in this environment and like someone said to me like you know if you know who would you book on Lollapalooza now and I said I wouldn't I'd let a kid do it although I would do a 25th or anniversary <laughs> restaging of the second stage but but that's the thing I think that that's why these these festivals have become so successful like I'm I'm such a big fan of Paul Tillette, who runs Golden Voice, who started Coachella, who, who surrounds himself with the best taste-making people possible and remains relevant year after year. That's the thing that Lollapalooza stopped doing. Yeah. It, stopped, and it stopped acknowledging its own fallibility and its own lack of relevancy. I think whenever you have something that achieves a level of success, and I, and I assume that you know Lollapalooza is probably a lot like this. I mean, at some point, 
the business of being Lollapalooza becomes a little bit more important than the actual festival itself. And, you know, and when you get certain people involved, like you know, I've been interviewed enough bands and, and musicians over the years to know that a lot of times those in the record industry don't necessarily know a whole hell of a lot about music. They know about distributing records. They know about sales. They know about business and, and, and everything else, but they don't always have the ear that lets them say, well, this band has you know great potential. They're kind of hearing that from, from younger people, but they don't really see it themselves. And, and sometimes that's why certain bands miss the mark or certain bands don't get the attention that they probably deserve. As a guy that wound up transitioning into A&R, did you find the same kind of resistance to certain ideas and, and certain discoveries that you had or working no, for them? It was a hundred percent a place filled with people that were not music fans. Hmm. And, and, and I don't understand that. And maybe being, you know, a, a hall of fame broadcaster, <laughs> you, know, you, you, you probably don't encounter too many peers that are huge music fans like yourself. And, and again, this isn't an indictment of the other people. It's like some people are great at their job and, and their other things. And, 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 but, but being a music fan and being in a position to choose and identify talent and apply resources to it at the level a major label does and, and put everything I have towards that was kind of like the next logical step for me. Right. And in my head, I just wanted A&R not to stand for acquire and ruin, because that's what it seemed like was happening to a lot of the, you know, the, the, the Indian alternative bands that were getting signed around the time I started at Atlantic, which was in 1995. So for me, the, the going into it, I, I just kept thinking about the people in the grill room at Marquette, the audiences at Lollapalooza, the the kids that I hung out with in the mall in high school, like, like, who are those people now? Like, if I was 14 in 1995, and I woke up that day, what would be my thing? What would be my favorite thing? Right. And so I, I set out signing acts, appealing to that versus my own strident sense of music being about my bloody Valentine and Sonic Youth. Like I knew I, you know, and at that time, I'm, I'm approaching 30. And I'm like, okay, so people aren't necessarily going to have the same experience that I do and respond to the same things that I do. But that doesn't mean that they don't have the same sense of curiosity and passion and degree of interest that I did. So in many ways, I had to put whatever the quote unquote cool was aside and really just think about what could impact someone that was a 14 year old version of myself that day. And so at Atlantic, that's what I set out to do. And ironically, like I ended up ANRing two Bad Religion records. And that was a band I used to go see in high school. And I have such <laughs> tremendous respect for them. And their guitar player, Brian Baker, was in Minor Threat. Yep. He was in Death Nasty. He was in Junkyard. To this day, one of the smartest, funniest people I've ever met. The other guitar player was in the Circle Jerks and was in Red Cross. So here I am offering advice and opinions to people that I considered heroes and legendary. And, you know, Greg Graffin, the singer at the time was getting his PhD in paleontology from Cornell. And, you know, I, again, I'm, I'm not worthy. Right. But they were, <laughs> they were so 
accepting and so supportive of having the voice in the room and ultimately enlisting me as a problem solver and utilizing all that I'd done to kind of help in any way that I could. So that was a real big um, moment for me to be in that position. One of my other favorite projects, I anard a, a gal named Poe, P-O-E, mm-hmm. who was basically had recorded the first ever album on Pro Tools. The album went gold um, and ha- had a very fierce thread that just needed someone to keep everyone away and enable her to do her thing. And so I ended up ANRing her second album that took about two years to, to put together. Mm. Her brother, um, Mark Danielewski, had released an album called The House of Leaves, which was kind of like in the pantheon of David Foster Wallace and Jeffrey Eugenides and, and things like that, where it was a, a writer's writer and an instant cult hero book. So I was in a position where I had to defend her and her art and what she was doing. And that really fortified a lot for me. And it was at that time that I found the band POD. And at first it was, I I didn't really, I wasn't really sure what I was listening to because it was a hybrid of so many things. And I had gone to a show at the Roxy on sunset on on a Sunday night, it was sold out. The kids were 14. They were had better skateboard clothes than I did. They were more passionate at that point than I was. And they were just playing this really fierce music that reminded me a lot of, I don't know, maybe Rage Against the Machine or I don't know, maybe a little bit of Tool or something. But I met the guys and it was interesting. The bass players, like I listened to George Benson and Quincy Jones and the drummers, like I learned to play drums to the cars and, and ACDC. <laughs> And the singer's like, you know, I like Bob Marley and Led Zeppelin, but the guitar player was like, I like Jimmy Eat World. I like the Chemical Brothers. I was like, oh, okay. And then they're like, but we all like Bad Brains. And I'm like, I'm in. (laughs) And so, so, you know, and my, and I would say I cited all their musical influences. What I was hearing in the guitar player was a lot of the same intonation that Killing Joke had in their music. Yeah. So there was really sort of affected angular uh, emotive guitar that was coming through his fingers on the fretboard. And I was like, okay, so if I can, if I can orient myself to them through what the bad brains have been to me, and I can apply the sort of Britishy, gothy, new wavy stuff that I like, maybe this this could be a thing. So I signed them and the band had at that point had a following in, in, let's call it the Christian market. Right. And I call it the Christian market because there was a scene of bands at the time that were playing to youth groups and social halls and church basements and things like that. And their contemporaries were a band called MXPX. And even, I think Blink-182 had some ties to it at that point. But what you had was a subculture. You had these bands that were playing in these tertiary and secondary markets to suburban kids whose parents let them go to shows because their youth group and their church sponsored it. But the music sounded like contemporary punk rock music. Funny that you mentioned, you know, Bad Brains and even Killing Joke. And all three of those bands certainly have like a certain spirituality to them. Certainly Bad Brains, but but even on the on the furthest 
end of it, Killing Joke does too. Right. And we would say like, you know, th- there's Christians in the band, but they're not a Christian rock band, you know? And we would, we would fight U2 a lot. And, you know, Bono had this quote of religion is when God leaves and man takes over. And U2 was pretty supportive of, of what we were doing at the time because they knew the band had this spiritual thread, let's call it that. But they never went out and preached and they never went out and sort of smashed everything over, over their heads. And, and the crazy thing is POD's first ever tour was opening for Primus. And that goes back to my connection booking Primus at Marquette. So many things come full circle that way. And then Corn ended up taking them on the road. And then they went on, they went on to take Lincoln Park out for Lincoln Park's first ever tour. They were the first act of three. And it was just one of those things where you could just see the, the kids responding, the subculture responding. And in, in the late 90s and early 2000s, their version of, of rock and metal was what became a thing. And they were the first rock band to be number one on TRL. Um, they got on there and they gave shout outs to Stained and the Deftones and Incubus. And Atlantic got really angry that they didn't mention the other acts on Atlantic, but there weren't other acts on Atlantic like them at the time. And, and I was just in my own lane with them and listening to them and facilitating them doing what they do. Because I think the smartest thing any music executive does is listen to the artist because they, they know better. I can think I know better, I can act like I know better, but if they truly have it, which the right musicians and artists do, every minute you should spend listening to what it is that they have to say and then spend you know, your efforts trying to implement that no matter what. And it's the no matter what that sucks. <laughs> I want to ask you though a little bit because you know you've owned you know Gray Market Records for like the last uh, six or seven years, and I was on the website you know yesterday, actually right after we we talked the other day, just to listen to you know these bands because I I had not heard these artists, and um, it's interesting that you, you talk about you know you know what you are marketing to or what you were thinking about marketing to many years ago, because these. Because the songs that I heard from, and, and I may be butchering the names, like you know Donzi and you know Oka Tigra and, and and some of the others that were on the website, they may be obscure names, but these are all very uh, accessible sounding records, and they were wonderful. I mean, they were really really good. And it's like, well, it's full circle. Yeah. Because to me, to me, it's now when because when you end up, you know, look, and you know, working for Lollapalooza, working for Atlantic running a joint venture with Atlantic and then Universal, you find yourself in a position where trends are changing, tastes are shifting, you become good at a job and you fight that strength against your passion and your belief in something which could be entirely different. So I was orienting myself to my job through the people that were making the music the music that they were making may not have necessarily been my first love or my first thing, but I believed in them. I believed in their vision. I believed in what they were doing and I knew how to facilitate on their behalf opportunities and, and, and shepherding resources to them. And that was kind of what I then became good at was learning how to turn every 
no into a not yet, and then the not yet into a yes, and the yes into hopefully other people falling in to their line of vision and what they were trying to do as artists. But eventually it kind of runs its course. And I think, you know, everything is cyclical and I don't know if the 20 year cycle makes sense or whatever, but I just found myself at the end of running a joint venture, really not wanting to listen to music and not wanting to spend my spare time in the headspace of just listening. And I, I started going to art galleries and, and art became, art galleries became the new record stores for me. And I right. just would go lost there like I would. But anyway, um, I, I just took a step back and I realized there was so many younger artists making music that was very similar to music I was listening to 20 years ago and referencing bands like Ride and Slow Dive and My Bloody Valentine and the Cocteau Twins and um, and of course Joy Division, New Order, Bauhaus, The Cure, you know, my, my pantheons of rock. <laughs> I just, I realized at that point, like, I don't need the big in infrastructure of a major label anymore. Most artists are able to record at home or with a friend. A lot of people mixing now are charging very reasonable mix rates because right. they don't have to have a $2,000 a day studio, they have a home studio and you're paying them a fraction of what you used to because their costs aren't being eaten up by the studio. So more money can go to them. So anyway, I, I, I just decided to find acts that speak to what I love and what my passion is and hopefully um, provide them the same level of advice um, the same level of guidance and hopefully enough resources where it then becomes what Amit Erdogan, who founded Atlantic Records, would tell me time and time again. It's all about timing and it's all about luck. <laughs> and I feel like right now the hardest thing for any new artist is breaking anonymity. Yeah. Because we don't have the level of curation we used to have at radio and 120 minutes and the, you know, the one page in Rolling Stone devoted to alternative music. Like you would have very specific tastemakers that you could point to that would open you up to the new things. Now there's so many playlists, there's so many avenues, there's so many outlets. And as a person working with new and developing talent, I can't just hire a publicist and get in Melody Maker and NME and, and right. alternative requests. That's not a thing anymore. I can't just get on the specialty radio show, um, present company except, ex ex exempted. And, <laughs> and even college radio, what's that now? Yeah. And so, so much of what's breaking acts now is TikTok, Twitch, and Instagram. And it's, I have to say it's really tough, but it doesn't diminish my passion for what I'm doing. It just means... I have to figure out and unpuzzle what this moment is. And I'm still trying to figure that out. Well, you've got a major challenge in the fact that just distribution has a whole different meaning today in music. I mean, it's, you're not moving albums or CDs anymore. You're moving MP3s and playlists. And it's, it's very hard to, to really feel as if there's a, there's a monetization point in that when the when the the payback to a spotify is so 
is so lopsided. It's a difficult time to be a musician. Well, the hard part is what do I invest in and how do I invest in? And so what it usually comes back to is the music that's being made, the equipment that's being purchased to make it, um, the photo shoots that are representing the artist in absence of not being able to tour for two years, music videos that have gotten a lot cheaper to make, um, you know, and, and, and all of those things that are presenting what this project is. Because anyone can put up a digital single or album and have it available around the world in 24 hours. But 10,000 other people are doing it in that same moment. So, so then what? And the idea that for two years, we haven't had the ability to connect fan to band has led to, you know, a lot of what's been going on on, on, on TikTok and a lot of what's been going on on Instagram, which I think is okay. Like I, my playlist last year, like I, I, one of the top things I listened to the most was the Dua Lipa album. The Dua Lipa album is amazing. The production is great. The songwriting is great. And that's alongside Black Country New Road. So mm -hmm. I still have the same esoteric sense of what I'm gravitating towards, but I'm also actively pursuing finding out the things I don't know. Like one of my favorite acts is an artist named Nilifer Yanya from the UK. And she's amazing. And I, I forget where I just, I first heard of her, but like finding an artist like that, that, that few of my friends know about and sharing why I like it has been amazing. Yeah. But that said, I think the thing is with the label is I'm worrying more about how good the projects are, mm -hmm. how authentic they are and, and hoping that the timing will line up and hoping that things will fall into place for them. Like two of the acts on the label are playing the South by Southwest Festival in Austin. Most people I talk to aren't going because of COVID, but it's, it's such a legendary um, first look for so many emerging acts that the two acts that I have that are performing there are really building in and around touring in and touring out and trying to get different parties and other looks while they're there. So that's a great opportunity. But ultimately, what I think is going to happen post pandemic is a return to, you know, coming full circle to the tribal aspect of things. Because I feel like more than anything, we're looking for our tribe again, we're looking for a version of what the subculture was to you, to you and me. And I really think people are going to find it again. And I really think within each of each of the tribes and each of the subcultures, we're going to have their, the superstars within each of them emerge. That's going to then affect, and then ultimately, hopefully enhance and increase the level of exposure that people have to, to artists other than Dua Lipa. Hey, listen, I, I am thrilled that we had a chance to, to do this. I was uh, looking forward to talking to you for a long time. And I'm really glad we made it happen. And it's and, and I and I, I said it at the beginning and I mean it now. I'm very proud of, of you, John. And and your your career has been astounding. And and you're you've made a lot of Marquette people very proud of you. So thank you. <laughs> thanks, man. I'll talk to you soon, hopefully. Good to see you, John. Thank you so much. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Today's podcast is brought to you by Canna Provisions in Holyoke and Lee, Massachusetts. Check them out 
at canofprovisions.com. If you like the show, feel free to share it, review it, tell all your friends about it. You can reach me at baxatrock102.com. I'd love to hear what you think. And thanks again for listening to Maxie's Musical Podcast.